Sir Winston Churchill took eight years to get through the eighth grade because he had trouble with the English language. Ironically enough, later in his life, he was asked to deliver a commencement speech to the University of Oxford. And Spurg Spurgeon, not Spurgeon, Churchill, as always, wore his top hat, his cane, and had his patented cigar in his mouth. And so he walked up to the podium, stared out at those who were eager to listen to his speech, softly removed his hat, placed it on the lectern, removed the cigar from his mouth, and said, Never give up. Silence rang out for more than a few moments. He raised to his toes and he said, Never give up. Churchill then took his hat, placed it on his head, put the cigar back in his mouth, grasped his cane, and walked off the stage. His speech had been concluded. Churchill's words, never give up, are words we've probably heard at one point or another during our lives, and they can often be helpful. But truth be told, when you are being crushed beneath the weight of fear and worry, when you feel weak, the words never get up, give up are not quite enough to lift you up. Perhaps that's actually been your experience this week, or maybe it's even where you are this morning. You feel overwhelmed with worry, paralyzed by fear, and just weak. You're not alone, and you've come to the right place this morning as we get ready to come to Acts chapter 18, where we see that Paul, too, suffers from the calamity of fear, worry, that he knows what it is to be weak. And we hear Jesus' words to him, I am with you. I'm paraphrasing. He says, I am with you, and therefore you can continue to be faithful. Now that's a real encouragement, that Christ is with us. Our main idea this morning, it's going to be tied to that a little bit, it's this, that God's presence and providence empower our perseverance. God's presence and providence empower perseverance. And I'm going to exhort you this morning to lean into God's presence and his providence to persevere. You can see uh, that we work through the text through four encouragements that God brings into Paul's life. He's going to have encouragement from his friends, encouragement from the scripture, encouragement from the church, and encouragement from Jesus himself. Let's pray and we'll begin this morning. Father, we ask that you would be with us during this time, that you would help us to be in the room that thoughts of what we might do after this time together, things that, that we need to accomplish later in the week, that, that you would jettison those from our thoughts, that we would focus entirely on Christ and on hearing from 
your holy word. Pray that you would give us ears to listen and that you would help me to preach faithfully. And we thank you for this opportunity to obey you by gathering together. It's, it's for our good. What a wonderful way to begin our week. Pray that you would meet us now in Christ's name. Amen. And so we've been walking through the book of Acts, and in Acts, Jesus goes up, he ascends to his throne from where he rules and reigns. The Holy Spirit comes down, Jesus pours out his spirit on his church. The church is filled up with the Holy Spirit, and then the church goes out witnessing to Jesus' death and resurrection. And God, through the witness of the church, brings people in. He adopts those appointed to eternal life into his family when they repent of their sins and trust in Christ. That's what we've seen happening throughout Acts. There have been roadblocks, there has been adversity, but time and time again, God's word has worked. His word has prevailed. The church has been built up. It's made its way all the way to Athens, and this week it will go from Athens to Corinth with Paul. Look with me at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth is a really large city. Uh, It's on an, I can't ever say this word right, but it's isthmus, isthmus, right? I-S-T-H-M-U-S, I think, right? But it's basically this really thin sliver of land. It's only about three miles wide, and it connected uh, Peloponnesian to Peloponnesia to Greece, right? And so um, it's kind of a port city. And actually, before they were able to build a canal in the 19th century, there was like this wooden railroad type deal where people would take their ships and they would get them across the land from one harbor to another across this railroad system. It was really cool. But, but Corinth is, is a big city, and it's notorious for wealth and sexual immorality. Right? In the city, they had that um, fantastic temple of Aphrodite, about 1,900 foot above the city that overlooked everything. She's the goddess of love. And you could find those cult prostitutes of Aphrodite just about anywhere in the streets looking for, for worshipers, if you catch my drift. Right? Corinth was, uh, was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Right? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Okay, And so this was a, a big-time cosmopolitan city. And this is where Paul comes with the gospel. And it's interesting, he tells us that he comes to Corinth afraid. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, He writes this, When I came to you, to Corinth, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We're familiar with that part. Paul says, I've resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. But then look at verse 3 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul came to Corinth with fears. He knows what it is to be afraid. He's obeying God's call on his life. He's being faithful. And still, there is fear that persists. God understands this, and he sends Paul encouragement. And he begins with Aquila and Priscilla. He went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, 
And since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. And so we see how, how God has been working all things for Paul at this particular moment, right? He, he has control over Rome. He's sovereign over Claudius. See, Claudius had told the Jews and Christians by proxy uh, in Rome that they needed to, to get out. They caused a problem. Uh, this edict was given in about A.D. 49, and it was because these Jewish folks were creating riots in the cities over someone identified as Crestus, which is either a misspelling of Christ or a mispronunciation of it. I mean, I, what's going on is the gospel had made its way to Rome, and these disputes had broken out to the extent that Claudius, Claudius, right? Claudius said, you have to get out. And so the, the Jews left, and among them were Aquila and Priscilla, and they were brought to Corinth for such a time as this, that they might encourage Paul. It's really neat to see how God is working the lives of Aquila and Priscilla and the life of Paul and bringing them together here in a city that neither of them are from. Also that they might encourage one another. I do believe that Aquila and Priscilla are Christians at this point already. Uh, we're often told about important conversions. We see Aquila and Priscilla throughout the New Testament a number of times, and we're never told of their conversion. And so I think that the silence indicates that they're already Christians. And they provide a place to, for Paul to stay at, a place for him to work. And I don't think the mention of hospitality here is a footnote. I think it's really important because every time we see Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament, they're opening up their home to people. They are hospitable. And we, we've seen this throughout Acts. Hospitality comes up over and over and over again. Hospitality is one of those uh, primary marks of a Christian. It's not an optional part of the Christian life. It's an identifier. Right? It's, it's in our um, qualifications for elders and for our leaders. Christians are, are to be people who are hospitable, who, who love one another. And, and in weeks past, we talked about hospitality, and so it's worth mentioning again. I said hospitality isn't only about um, location, though it often happens in homes, but it's about a generous and loving allocation of our time and our resources. It's about investing in others. It's about loving one another. And so typically how this manifests in the ancient world and in, even in our world is at meals where we go to lunch together, have people into our homes, go to other people's houses, and, and that's simple. And so I'm just going to exhort you again, uh, be hospitable, eat together, spend time with one another. And I also want to bring your attention to some roadblocks to hospitality. You need to, to be aware of some things that stop us or keep us from being hospitable. I've got four. The first is, and they're going to be quick, the first is overcommitment. Our calendars are so packed full of so many things that we just don't have time for hospitality. And so our calendars end up controlling us rather than the priority of eating together, spending time with one another, of inviting people into our homes. Of all these other things and we don't have time for one another. We don't have time to practice being hospitable. So we want to be aware and avoid overcommitment. The second thing is intentional isolation. And I, I get this one. I'm an introvert. There are times where I intentionally isolate myself. 
But this is not a good pattern for life. It keeps us from engaging with other people. We intentionally cut ourselves off from them, and they intentionally cut, ourselves off, cut themselves off from us. That's bad, right? An isolated Christian is in danger. A sheep that is by himself, by herself, is a sheep that is in danger of getting eaten. We are called to live life together. And so if we intentionally isolate ourselves from one another, if we just casually miss these gatherings, we put ourselves in danger and we cut ourselves off from the community that we are called to. So when we intentionally isolate ourselves, we will not be hospitable. The third one is addiction to comfort keeps us from being hospitable. It's just easier to do our normal routine. And if you have somebody over, you're going to have more dishes. If you go to somebody else's house, then you're not going to get to bed at your normal time. And you know, you're going to have to eat their food. And what if they make something they don't really like? You're going to have to you know, try to eat it anyway. It might be awkward. You don't really like them that much. And it's just, the whole thing is going to be really, really uncomfortable. It's funny, I think about that because I'm prone to just loving my comfortable life too. But, but friends, inconvenience is a byproduct of intimacy. Comfort is something that you give up when you enter into friendships. Right? Trouble is a corollary to having really close relationships. Because what happens when you get close to people is their problems, <laughs> they become your problems. Okay? And so some of us, just to avoid all of that, to avoid having more problems in our lives, just cling to our comfort. We don't build relationships. We don't practice hospitality. I think Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and yet we are not willing to lay down our comforts to build friendship. Even paraphrase it as I was thinking about the text this week. Uh, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his comfort, that he might host his friends for dinner. We should be willing to do the lesser if we claim to be willing to do the greater. I think every one of us as Christians who are committed to Christ and to one another would say, yes, I will lay down my life for Christ. I would lay down my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ. But we're not so willing to say, I will go to dinner once every two weeks on a Tuesday night at that brother's house, or I will have somebody over to my home once a month on a Friday night for tea and crumpets. You know, like, we're not willing to do it. We need to be willing to do that. Addiction, our addiction to our comfort is a roadblock to hospitality. And then lastly, selfishness. Some of us just don't even think about it. We think about me, myself, and I, my family, my schedule, what I'm doing, and so we don't host. But hospitality is really important. So we need to be aware of these things and other things that keep us from practicing it. We need to be in one another's lives. You're probably sick of hearing me say it, but I'm going to continue to say it because it continues to come up in Acts and throughout the New Testament. We are to engage one another in real relationship, real friendship. And that happens throughout the week. It happens here, but it also must happen throughout the week. Friends, do you know that an invitation to lunch or to your home can be a life raft for someone? Like, no one in our midst should have to drown in loneliness. 
Someone who is a loner, who is always isolating themselves from the body of Christ, well, they're in danger. And, and if you recognize that, you should go, this is an emergency. A person alone is an emergency, especially if they're part of the body of Christ. It's, it's my responsibility to throw them, a, throw them a life raft. Come over, have some dinner. Let's go to lunch. Who might you throw a life raft to this week? Who might you reach out to to encourage? This is precisely what Aquila and Priscilla do to Paul. They, they throw him a life raft. He comes to Corinth full of fear with much trembling, and here they are. And Paul, he gets to stay with them. Not only stay, does he stay with them, he works with them. They just so happen to share the same trade, which is leatherworking that they use to the end of making tents, which is pretty lucrative at the time. And so Paul works with Aquila and Priscilla. He lives with them, and this just has to be an encouragement from the Lord. Now, granted, tent making and being bivocational, only able to, to preach the gospel on the Sabbath is not the ideal, but at this point in time, it's necessary for Paul. And he's thankful that he probably learned this skill. Most people think he learned this skill in his youth. Uh, the rabbis used to have a saying, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. And so they would all learn trades. And so Paul was able to, to utilize his knowledge of leatherwork now to support himself in the proclamation of the gospel. That is until God sends him another encouragement in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Silas and Timothy finally catch up to Paul and he is then able to be occupied fully by, he's able to devote himself to the preaching of the word entirely. What happens here is when they show up, they also bring money from those Macedonian churches so that Paul can be fully funded and not have to worry about tent making that he can give all of his time and all of his attention to ministering to those who are in the city of Corinth. That had to be pretty encouraging. Silas and Timothy also would have brought with them reports from uh, the other churches who had, had given this money. I mean, Paul just has to be super pumped. One of the things I recognized as I thought about this was that God uses ordinary Christians to accomplish the work of the Great Commission. These ordinary Christians in the Macedonian churches give financially to support Paul's work in Corinth. Timothy and Silas, they, they, they bring the, the funds there, they bring news, and they encourage Paul in the work of the gospel. It's, it's really simple. Our ordinary Christian lives, our ordinary Christian obediences, things as simple as giving, help to support God's work, not only here, but throughout the world. And so we should give ourselves to ordinary obediences, recognizing that God is at work through us. Like, just imagine, I think sometimes when we think of Acts from a broad view or like just over, like an overview, we just think, man, Paul did some really awesome things. And he went here and he went there and all these churches were planted. But imagine how little Paul would have gotten accomplished without the help, without the encouragement of folks like Aquila and Priscilla and Silas, and Timothy, and those Macedonian churches. It would have been a lot less. 
Our ordinary obedience to the word of God will help to accomplish the work of God in and among us. Paul is encouraged by these brothers. And then he's encouraged, I think, in an odd way by Scripture when he is rejected for preaching Christ to the Jews. You can see this in the next section. Verse 5 again. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent or clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so Paul follows his normal pattern of preaching the gospel to the Jews. He says, you need to repent of your sins. You're in rebellion against God. You need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. He's died in your place for your sins. And so when you, when you turn from those sins, when you lay down your rebellious arms and you put your faith in Christ, you follow him, you can be saved from your sins, saved from the wrath of God. You can have eternal life, and which is also kind of part of the pattern is they, they reject him. They say, we don't want any part of that. And Paul shakes off his clothes to kind of say, I'm, I'm um, cleaning myself from your guilt. I'm not guilty. I'm clean of your guilt. I'm innocent. Your blood be on your own heads. And you might ask, well, how, how is that encouraging? <laughs> this doesn't seem really encouraging. Paul's, he's being rejected. I think he's encouraging in this way because Paul's language draws up in our minds, or at least in my mind, a passage from Ezekiel, which reminds Paul of God's sovereignty and his responsibility. Let me try and show it to you in Ezekiel 33, verses 4 through 6. Ezekiel 33, 4 through 6, read this way. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them, suppose I bring the sword against a land, and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. And suppose he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his death will be his own fault. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but ignored the warning, his death is his own fault. If he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. However, suppose the watchman sees the sword coming but doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned and the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they have been taken away because of their iniquity. But I will hold the watchmen accountable for their blood. See, God is speaking to Ezekiel there, and Ezekiel's job as a prophet is to speak God's word to God's people. And God gives him a kind of parable that tells him about what his job is like. He's saying, you are like a watchman on the walls, and you are going to tell my people about the judgment that is coming to them. And if they listen, they will save themselves. But if they don't listen, the judgment will sweep them up. And they will be guilty themselves. They'll bear their own guilt. Their own blood will be upon their head. They will have no one to blame but themselves. But he also says, if the watchman doesn't blow the trumpet so that they're warned, the watchman will also be accountable for their blood. So you see, Paul likewise is like the watchman. He's like Ezekiel. His responsibility is to proclaim God's word to God's people, that they might turn from their sins 
and enjoy God's salvation. Paul, Paul is, is blowing the trumpet. He's saying, judgment is coming. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, for all who will trust in him, and he rose from the dead. So those who have faith in him, they'll, they'll rise from the dead. They will escape the judgment of God. But if you don't trust in Christ, he is returning. He is going to end evil. He is going to judge sin, and you are a sinner. He's going to judge you. Flee the judgment that is to come by coming to Christ. That's his job, is to blow the trumpet. And so what Paul is saying here, when he says, your blood is on your own heads, I am innocent. He's saying, I've done my job. I've blown the trumpet. I've made the announcement. I've warned you about the danger that you're in. There's no blood on my hands. I'm clean. You have no one to blame but yourself for rejecting this message. So you see how this can be encouraging. When Paul is rejected, he's not going, oh man, their, their salvation, that's completely up to me. Maybe I could have said this that way or, or this another way. and Maybe I could have been more persuasive. Maybe, maybe they would have even been more apt to listen to me if I dressed a little bit different. Or this blazer instead of that one. No, no, he, he's able to step back and go, you have rejected God's word. He understands that his responsibility is to proclaim the word of God, not do the miracle of conversion. And so there, there is an encouragement in this text and a challenge. The encouragement is that our responsibility is to blow the trumpet of the gospel, to share God's word, to evangelize. And the challenge is to actually blow the trumpet, to actually share the gospel with those around us. I wonder, when we think about those people whom God has brought into our lives that don't know Christ, I wonder if we're able to say with Paul, I'm innocent. Or if we have blood on our hands because we've not shared the gospel faithfully. We want to make it our ambition to blow the trumpet and say, judgment is coming. There's a glorious Savior who's taken God's judgment in your place so that you can have God's salvation. But if you refuse him, oh, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Turn from your sin. We must be a people who are willing to tell the truth, to evangelize, to, to blow the trumpet. And indeed, it is an encouragement that God is sovereign over salvation, that it's not dependent on us. And at the same time, we are responsible to share the gospel with those around us. And so Paul shares he is rejected, and, and it's my contention that he knows God's word, he knows of God's sovereignty, and so he doesn't shrivel or shrink because he's rejected. He's able to continue preaching. He shakes the dust off of his feet off of his clothes, declares himself innocent, and moves on to the Gentiles, continues preaching. And it's here where his preaching continues that he is encouraged yet again. Get verse 7. So he left there, that's the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God, that's a God-fearer like Cornelius, whose house was next door to the synagogue. This is really funny to me. He's like, 
your blood be on your own hands. I'm innocent. I'm going to the Gentiles from now on. It's like, dun, 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 door shuts. And then he walks like right next door and take up shop right here. It's just funny to me. And then look at what happens. He's rejected in the synagogue. He, he takes up, sets up shop next door. And we read in verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many Corinthians, when they heard, believed, and were baptized. So, so Paul is rejected in the synagogue initially, sets up shop next door, and then all of a sudden, Cor- I don't, it's not Cornelius, Crispus believes the leader of the synagogue. And this really had to have made those who rejected Paul extra angry, right? The, the leader of the synagogue believes in Jesus. Friends, you never know who God is going to save. No one is beyond his sovereign grace. He is able to save anyone at any time. Notice, like he doesn't believe, Christmas doesn't believe initially. It's later on, after Paul has left the synagogue. I think that's a really great encouragement. That you don't know if a seed you planted will yet spring up after you've long left someone else's life. Your responsibility is to be like the one who sows the seed in Mark chapter 4. He scatters the seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. We're to, to sow those gospel seeds and recognize that God is the one who gives life and growth, not us. Indeed, we're responsible to sow the seeds of the gospel. And then God is the one who sovereignly makes them grow up and spring forth with life. Anyone can be saved at any time. God is the one who works this miracle. This is why we should pray for all those in our lives who don't know Christ. When we share the gospel, we are hoping for God to do an extraordinary act. We're hoping for a miracle. That's one we ought to pray for ahead of time. Crispus and his whole household comes to the Lord. We also see that many Corinthians hear the gospel. They believe and are baptized. And so they just follow the normal pattern of a Christian life. They hear that Jesus has been crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. They believe that. As a consequence of that belief, they are baptized and they are, it's not here, it's implicit, it, they, they then organize themselves into a church, right? Paul stays here in verse 11, we will read, for about a year and a half. We have letters written to the Corinthians because they didn't just get baptized and then go back to their lives as normal. They continued gathering together every Lord's Day and throughout the week to learn about Jesus to worship Jesus. This is the normal pattern of the Christian life, that we would hear, believe, be baptized, and then commit ourselves to gathering together in obedience to Jesus' command to worship him, to learn about him. I would say this, is, this should be an encouragement. It should encourage our evangelism because people do believe the gospel. They come to believe in Jesus. I don't know if there's anything more exciting you can do in your Christian life than share the gospel with someone and see them respond with faith. There's not anything like it. 
I don't know how you can come in here on a Sunday and not be encouraged. Because every time we gather together, there's proof that the gospel works. It's proof that God saves sinners. He still does it. Paul has to to look at the church in Corinth and be encouraged. Look at the fruit his evangelism has borne. And yet he's still fearful enough that the Lord Jesus comes to him in a vision. Look with me at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Jesus tells Paul that he doesn't need to fear, they can keep on speaking, because he is with him. It reminds Paul of his presence, of the promise of his presence, and of his providence. Paul doesn't have to be afraid because Jesus is with him. Paul can keep speaking because Jesus is with him. Brothers and sisters, you and I can keep speaking. We can keep walking in Christian faithfulness, not because we are so strong, but because Jesus is with us. There's a promise he's made to us. Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Romans 8 tells us that affliction, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, they all fail to separate us from the love of God. Paul says in verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 13 tells us, I will never leave you, my precious child. I will never forsake you. There's nothing to fear in men. They can't do anything for you because I am with you. The words of Isaiah in chapter 41.10 apply to you and I in Christ. It says, do not fear. I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Friends, the one who holds the world in his hands has a hold of you, so you need not fear. When you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when you feel crushed by fear, overwhelmed with worry, you need to remember that Christ is with you. There to comfort you. And he knows the way out. When you are in Christ, you don't need to fear because ultimately this world cannot touch you. Death will not hold you. Suffering will not outlast you. Fear will not ultimately cripple you. And worry will not ultimately overwhelm you. Because Jesus is with you and he will see you through to the end. He will finish the good work he started in you. So you can persevere because Christ is with you. Is that Paul? Paul, you can persevere. You can keep evangelizing. You can keep speaking. You can keep obeying me even when it's hard because I am with you. Friends, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am with you. 
Are you downcast? Are you filled with sorrow? Do you feel like giving up? Never give up because I am with you. You see that God's presence empowers our perseverance in the faith. There's another source of encouragement to endure in these verses. And it's, it's twofold for Paul. He has this promise that no one's going to lay a hand on him while he's in Corinth to hurt him physically. He says, because I have many people in this city. So I've put both of those under the banner of God's providence. Jesus has said, no one's going to touch you because I'm not going to let them. And I have many people in this city. You need to keep preaching the gospel because there are people here who are appointed to eternal life. You see how this ought to encourage us in evangelism. Right? God has people in Nelson County in your neighborhoods who are appointed to eternal life. They just don't know it yet. We have people that Jesus desires to save and will save when they hear the gospel, maybe even from your lips. They just don't know it yet. You gotta blow that trumpet. I mean, if God were, were not sovereign over salvation, we would have no guarantee of evangelistic success. But as it is, God saves sinners. And he is determined to save some people through your witness. He's guaranteed your success in some cases. So step out and share. Share the gospel. Testify. Witness. Also are encouraged by God's providence. His providence means that anything that happens to us happens for us because we've been united to Christ. That all these things that happen to each and every one of us will ultimately serve God's purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ will ultimately glorify God. So when we need to be encouraged, when we feel like giving up, we can lean into the fact that Jesus is with us and that Jesus is ruling for our good and for his glory. So when you feel overwhelmed by worry, or crippled by fear. Brothers and sisters, lean into God's presence. Jesus is with you. Lean into God's providence. He's ruling for you. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sin too often. We fear everything else but you. Too often we act as if our circumstances are sovereign and you are not. Too often we fail to trust you. Our confidence is easily shaken. Pray that it's those who are weak that we would find strength in Christ, whose strength is made perfect in that weakness. Pray that you would make us a people who are constantly cognizant to the fact that Christ is with us. And this truth could inspire boldness within us to be faithful in all of our Christian lives and especially in evangelism. 
God, we pray that you would continue to shape us to the image of Christ. That you would, that you would do miracles among our congregation and in our community. That we would see many who are lost be found by Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.